questions here. Something that came in uh, uh, just the other day on our live feature. How do you approach to teach a child when screaming when seeing a fly or an ant? What do you do? How do you approach this? Well, so this is a, a phobia basically, or the child is exhibiting behaviors that would be similar to a phobia. So. Um, what I would do is uh, a typical treatment that you do for phobias is systematic desensitization. Mm -hmm. And the treatment has to do, it has two, two portions. Mm -hmm. uh, the first portion is that you produce a hierarchy of uh, starting with something that uh, is the least fear-provoking within within the realm of that object, let's say ants, mm -hmm. um, up to the most fear-provoking. So uh, the most would be an actual ant. Mm -hmm. it, it was ants and, and flies. flies. Okay, so you basically want to do both, but mm -hmm. you do one, one before the other. Mm -hmm one at a time. So let's say ants and so an actual real ant perhaps crawling on the child's hand would be the most fear provoking right. and then you go down let's say 10 different stimuli. Um, so the next one might be a real ant in front of the child but right. not on his, arm, his hand. Then the next one might be um, an ant at a distance. The next one might be watching an ant on TV. Mm -hmm. Another one might be a picture of an ant and so on and so forth so that the one that you're starting with is pretty benign. It doesn't cause any kind of reaction. Um, and then the second portion of this treatment is that you teach the child some form of activity that's relaxing. Mm -hmm. So for instance, we do with a lot of our kids, if they can comprehend um, to this level, we do breathing exercises. So just um, counting and breathing. So, you know, one, oh, not a good day for me to be doing <laughs> breathing. I put my back out <laughs> oh, this morning. I'm sorry. So. Oh, sorry, I'll breathe for you. <laughs> Thank you. So, so. Counting and breathing, yes. and um, that's one. Uh, any kind of other visual imagery activity, like having the child think of some place they like, like Disneyland, having the child think of some activity they really like that's relaxing uh, or calming. Yeah. Um, having the child do something that is calming, like listen to music mm -hmm. um, or um, hold a favorite stuffed animal, some, mm -hmm. something that produces the reverse reaction to anxiety. And then what you do is you pair those two things. So mm -hmm. you start with level one, which is the, the benign stimulus sort right. of the picture of the ant let's say and you have the child listen to music or hold their stuffed animal right. or um, you know whatever it is do breathing exercises right. and so on and once the child's good at that you really reinforce the child and reward and you go to the next stimulus the next stimulus and ultimately you'll hit a stimulus that is right on the border of this is the beginning of causing fear for right. the child and it's not a bad idea to start with a couple of things that are not really fear-provoking right. so that it's more of a reward experience yeah. and then you gradually go into it and you stay at the level that is fear-provoking it's exposure really so it's a matter of like you might if a child let's say you uh, approach the section of okay now we're gonna look at a real ant and so the ant uh, so maybe the child will start screaming well what you do is you will 
start with a very, very uh, minimal amount of exposure, so maybe three seconds mm -hmm. with, let's say, some paired with some calming thing, and you gradually increase the exposure. Yeah. So it's a very gradual shaping process. Now, so, and that's what you do. That's desensitization, and over time, if you keep practicing that, the child will overcome their fear of these things. Yeah. Any phobia, actually. Yeah. This is the number one treatment for phobias. Now, having said that, I guess I realized midstream that I'm making the assumption that screaming equals fear. Ah. So with this child, because sometimes with our kids, screaming doesn't equal fear. Right, I don't right. know what That's it equals. True. It's just, you know, they've come into the habit. It could be the child has seen someone else scream when they saw an animal and then they did this. So. Let's talk about screaming itself, okay. and that's a difficult one because you have to teach the child to re just uh, you know stop screaming essentially, and so you have to teach them some symbol, um, which in normal life this is the symbol for mm -hmm. being quiet. So sh you know that, right. and of course you could do that with the child, and if the child is able to imitate, and again this is problem, this is a little difficult to answer because I don't know the functioning level of the child, but right. if they are, they might even imitate. They might go instead of screaming okay. which is a positive step because then gradually yeah. you'll just go shh and drop the hand right. and the child might imitate that and then you'll just go and then the child might imitate that and you fade backwards and then the child's not screaming anymore okay. so I don't know which one it is but right. hopefully that answered both uh, and, possibilities and fascinating in both in both places and, it, and it, it strikes me that part of it being key is being diligent and patient yeah and the most important part of behavior change is shaping yeah so in the first scenario you're shaping forward you're shaping up to being able to tolerate something that's yeah. fear-provoking in the second situation your backward chain is shaping which is essentially you're fading out what you taught the child or what the child was doing shaping means just taking very small steps yeah and taking really small steps is probably the key to all learning because it's so uh, unnoticeable let's say yeah. for the child that that they will and all your the whole time you're rewarding the child it's kind of like if someone you know that's if you think of any behavior change and like you think of people who now um, stop smoking and they take up the electronic cigarettes right. the reason that these electronic cigarettes are successful is because it, it is inherently a shaping procedure right because you're not giving up the whole thing right you're just giving up what's in it you still have the habit yes and then you can reduce the habits because now you've separated and you're going small steps fast so everything with small steps works better I think sometimes as parents we think well I want this to change and I want it to train as change as fast as possible and when somebody says we're going to do this and it might take two months right that feels like a really excruciating long right, period right. of time but when you consider two months to desensitize a, a phobia to have that under control for the rest of your life right two months doesn't seem like a really long period absolutely of time. i mean i wish i when i was a kid it's strange because now i have four dogs but when i was a kid i used to actually have a fear of dogs and that mm. was because my cousin had a uh, my cousins had a uh, very beautiful boxer 
cancer who uh, contracted rabies. Oh. And so it was a pretty scary experience, and I was like three, I think, or something, Oof. and I just developed this huge fear. I wish someone had done that for me. Yeah. Because it really did take a while for me to overcome that fear. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, sometimes you look at your child's behavior and you think, there's nothing about this that is acceptable, so therefore I have to completely eliminate it immediately. Right. But the truth is, there's a reason the child has developed that behavior pattern. And often if you eliminate it immediately, which, you know, another, which I'll talk about in a second, another way of getting rid of phobias is called flooding. Yeah. And flooding doesn't involve shaping, it's just exposure to the very traumatic stimulus. We think of that with, as throwing somebody in the deep end of the pool. Exactly, exactly. That scares me. Well, I mean, and it's faster and it's been proven to be very effective. Really? But in some cases it's traumatic yeah and can cause like a little bit of a psychological sort of fear of you know um the stimulus that provoked it like right. you right <laughs> you know? exactly and and secondly <clears throat> often if you do flooding it the the individual replaces the phobia with something else because there was a need for that phobia to be there and phobias are as you know sort of part of the whole anxiety disorders and which go hand in hand with all the obsessive compulsive stuff yeah. we don't want to go, go into a big lecture on anxiety <laughs> but we do these things because of unrealistic um, perceptions it's the same as having compulsions yeah you know, we have compulsions they're not realistic but they give right. us a sense of control Right. Phobias Absolutely. give us a sense of control by avoiding. Right. So yeah. Fascinating. Absolutely <laughs> fascinating. All right, we're going to take a short break and come back with more of your questions for Dr. Doreen Grampuche. Now's a great time to be writing them in. Stick with us. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. Dr. Doreen Grampuche is here with us answering your questions. And you have the ability to send them in to us on Facebook, or you can send them in on the live feature. There are many different ways to participate. Uh, so a question here from a viewer. My son is three. He lines up letters and his special ed teacher said it is okay because eventually when he starts reading and writing the letters will be in lines too. What do you think? Also he recently started looking in the corners of his eyes and having a smirk on his face for no apparent reason. I tell him nice face and nice eyes. What else can I do to redirect him? Love this question. I do too. I can imagine how cute he is. Yes. Has a smirk on his face for no apparent reason. <laughs> like yeah, that's too cute. Um, okay, so that's actually a really good question because you, there will be situations in life well, where parents often, this is a, a, a common question, where they ask me, is this okay or is it self-symmetry? Is this yeah. something I should stop or is it okay? Yeah. And I always ask them a couple of things, which is like, this is a very good one because you can easily determine whether it's okay or not. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, uh, um, if you disrupt his line of letters, does he get upset? Mm. And if he gets upset, that means that he's not just lining them up for because he's learned them that way. Right. But he's doing it in a ritualistic fashion, which is a compulsion. Okay. okay. So that means uh, going back to the whole obsessive compulsive thing, that essentially means uh, the person who 
has to go back in the house and wash their hands 5,000 times right. a day, you're stopping them from right. doing that. And if you do that to someone who has obsessive compulsive problems, uh, they will freak out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because it causes a huge amount of anxiety for them that they're not able yeah. to wash their hands, the compulsion por portion. So if your child is doing the lining up as a compulsive type thing, you won't be able to easily replace it with something else. Okay. You just won't. It'll be the thing they have to do. And that's the problem. Right. The problem is if you have certain rituals that you must do, and it must be a certain way, those things will get in the way of life. Yeah. And that's the only reason. Otherwise, who cares? I mean, you know, yeah. we could be lining things up all the time. But the fact <laughs> is, if you're lining them up and it, it has to be a perfect line, otherwise you can't leave it, and that's the only thing you want to play with, then you're not going to do other things. You're not going to play like other kids. You're not going to leave the line because you don't trust someone will come and touch it or whatever. So that's the real test. Um, my personal feeling would be if I was observing my child uh, lining letters up a lot, I'd probably mess up the line a few times just to make sure he's okay. not getting obsessive about it. Um, so that's the response to that. Um, having said that, uh, I found that some of the kids who line up letters, and this also depends on the age of the child too, but if they're young and they're just particularly lining up letters, they tend to have a very intense uh, interest in letters. Mm -hmm. And he might be lining up letters also because that's how words are, mm -hmm. right? So he's beginning to develop sort of a reading ability or perhaps he's hyperlexic. Mm -hmm. Hyperlexic kids are kids that essentially teach themselves reading by sight memory and uh, sight words. And that's a very good skill to have. Mm -hmm. And it does, the literature shows, and I've seen this with my kids, that if you are hyperlexic, you tend to learn things much faster. Yeah. Um, and you, because your memory's crazy, you have an amazing visual memory. And so, you know, not that you need to, you should still disrupt the lining up of letters if it becomes kind of rote, but experiment with the fact that your child might really be into reading mm -hmm. and start holding books uh, in front of him, ch child books and children's books and reading them while you show him or have him go through as you're reading because that could be something really cool and good right. for your child. Sure. And then for the other part about redirecting when he's looking at things out of the corner of his eye right. and the smirk. Right. Thanks how for would you that yeah. Up. yeah. How would you redirect? So I would actually, well, I mean, there's the easiest way to do is just depending on his comprehension level is basically just to uh, replace it with having him look at you okay or you can block it you can easily say you know uh, or, or depending again on his comprehension level you could explain to him that um, it kind of looks odd if you keep doing that or it's gonna hurt your eyes if you keep looking in the corner if he's not at that comprehension level then you're just gonna have to block it each time okay because he um, a lot of kids actually do that that's an interesting one as well and we could talk about that. Temple Grandin writes quite a bit about that too. But you know, when you look at the from the corner of your eyes, your peripheral vision actually uh, has you have stronger acuity in darkness mm. with peripheral vision. That's just because of how the, you know, the cones and rods are in the eye. Okay. So um, I'm not sure if he does that just in darkness, but. Uh, some children have much better vision looking from the corner of their eyes 
and you know I, I, I can't tell you to go see an optom ophthalmologist because right. not a lot of ophthalmologists will even diagnose this right um, it would be probably beneficial to see a if your child has these visual things mm -hmm. going on uh, I recommend developmental optometrists developmental optometrists are pretty cool because they give you exercises yep. for your child's eyes and these are things that will help the child track better uh, binocularity which means like being able to focus both eyes on one object you can do a lot of exercises like figure ground discrimination type mm -hmm. stuff that will really strengthen uh, the visual perception of yeah. objects not just it's not really vision itself it's how you see objects and uh, perceive them we have a lot of these exercises by the way in, in skills mm -hmm. in our online program curriculum skills and if you became a member for a month and went in you would be looking under the motor curriculum under visual motor and we have a bunch of stuff listed there and I, and I just want to say that Jem it was recommended eventually Jem used to do that look yeah. out of the corner yeah. of his eye and it was recommended eventually for him to go we went to the developmental ophthalmologist mm -hmm. and it was an amazing yeah it was an amazing uh, uh, experience and we found that he had a deficiency muscular uh, muscular yeah. deficiency that had nothing to do with autism right that he had been combating and it made things a lot easier for him his handwriting had been really bad I wished I had done it so much sooner Oh, perfect and um, and we also in addition to the exercise there is a a little machine that looks like something out of Star Wars right. that you can purchase that has lights that light up and they wear little glasses and and he had such a tremendous um, improvement in a year and it improved his handwriting so he's able to do That's cursive. It was worthwhile to do you, that. You, if you wouldn't mind, Shannon, tell yeah. me more about that machine later because I'd, I'd like to look bring into it in. that. Be I'll sorry. bring I, I it might, in. Because I'm th I have so many of our kids that mm -hmm. need the, these exercises and it's really important if there is something that we can do to help yeah. them. There are very few good developmental ophthalmologists. We have a few in California, but yes. They are not that common. And because of the fact that autism does have these visual issues uh -huh. around it, it's easy to confuse what's going on with a child. It could be a child who has, uh, like you said, uh, muscular issues. That would be like any other person who has, let's say, a lazy eye yeah. and they get the same kind of exercises. Um, or it could be simply the child's avoiding intense visual stimulation, like certain lights, or it could be a billion things. You know, Temple talks about how you see things in set boxes, and yeah. so that's part of the reason you're doing that. Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of different things that it could be but um, it's it's just hard to find someone who can tell you all of that yeah but I do find that in general whatever it is these exercises do actually help the child overcome the sort of side gazing yeah we've seen it and it is very important because yeah if you don't deal with it, it does tend to become one of those avoidance behaviors where the child is really doing a lot of that instead of looking at materials or you yeah. or learning how to write or read. Absolutely. There was one test that the doctor did with him and then he had me come in to see it. And I felt like a criminal because my child was in a chair a lot like a dentist chair and he had these two ball balls, one that was gold and silver on sticks and he would move them and have Jem track. And for Jem to be able to track the ball, yeah. 
he was like this the in the chair yeah. and he was yeah. pushing to be able to move his eye to focus. And he said, look what he's having to do physically to compensate to be able to follow An this object. ball. This is why we need to get him some help and support. And I did. I felt like a criminal. I mean, you only know what you know on the day that you know it, right? But the difference that it made for him was tremendous. That's amazing. So, uh, and, and it was because you guys recommended and that he do that and that you recommended the doctor that he go to. So, yeah, I, I often actually do send a lot of our kids who have visual things going on to uh, developmental people, ophthalmologists, mm -hmm. but uh, as I said, it's hard to get in and it's hard to find a good one, yeah. but it, which is why we kind of took a lot of the exercises we had learned yeah. and we do them automatically with our kids. But it is so important. Like I also have kids who won't learn if they if the stimulus is vertical yeah. or horizontal and you have to make sure that you're helping them with that. I have kids who stop toe walking once you do these exercises or I mean there's a lot of stuff and it has a lot of it has to do like when you say he was had to move in strange oh, yeah. ways yeah I wonder if some of the, our kids who toe walk are doing that because you know it there's a uh, Kaplan who on the is in New York and he's an amazing gentleman unfortunately he's either retired or is about to retire but he's the guy that does uh, these special prism lenses mm. and his um we have had children who will put these lenses on and start walking completely normally and if you and i put the lenses on it gives you the um impression that you're walking um downhill wow. and if you walk downhill you toe walk Mm. You tend mm -hmm. to toe walk because that's just the, how, how we balance. walk, how we are, how we balance. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. So hopefully that will help you to, to figure out how to proceed yep. with and the next And please let us know. Yes, absolutely. We're going to take another short break and we'll be back more with Ask Dr. Doreen after these messages. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. We have with us Dr. Doreen Grampache in the studio and you can be asking your questions in real time. We had a question that came in from a viewer saying, hi, what do you guys think? about biomedical treatments for autism does it and they, they wrote cute but I think they meant cure sometimes it's hard uh, mm -hmm. on, the, on the thing uh, so I assume they meant cure uh, or, or make autism better so what is your official position on biomedical <laughs> Dr. Grampy how much time do we have <laughs> yes uh, it's the short answer not the long answer okay I'll give a short answer okay. so we you know you can't first of all it's hard to comment on that because there are a, a thousand different biomedical interventions yeah. so yeah. I can't really make a comment on all of them there are some that I don't agree with um, and I've done a lot of research on them, for instance, hyperbaric oxygen, uh, soft chamber, uh, I don't know about 100% oxygen because we haven't done that study, but we did do multiple studies on 23% uh, oxygen, which is the soft chamber. And that, that the reason we did that was because it was becoming a really popular intervention that, and a lot of parents were putting a lot of money into it and to determine whether or not it's effective. Yeah. And we found that it's not. I mean, and there's no doubt in my mind because I came into it as a believer thinking this is going to really help because theoretically it should, and it didn't yeah. at all. And we did 
tons of measurements. So our studies were very, very strong studies. So and you, people were mad. Oh, there was a people, lot of people were, were mad because the study came out and said that there's no measurable difference. I, I lost friends over that. I'm sure <laughs> I have friends that get world. upset with me about that. And and, and we I, are going to be covering. I should say, um, not to interrupt you, but uh, sure. uh, during Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy, we're going to be covering the fact that the FDA this week put out a warning, uh, letting parents know that you should make sure that if you're going to do autism treatments, that they you should check the science. That a lot of people are wasting a lot of money doing things that, right. and they cite in the article about hyperbaric soft oh, chamber. You. Oh, do they? They do. Interesting. I wonder if they quoted or they referred to our studies. I don't recall that, yeah. but they're saying you know yeah. it isn't shown. It has not been shown to be effective. Right. But and so you need to be very careful about what you're doing and how you're spending your time and your money. Right. And right. that early intervention is important and that we know that ABA works and that it really, it seems as though the FDA is pointing and saying, make sure you put your eggs in this basket. Uh, yes. And, and there's no question about that. I, um, having said that, I mean, there's absolutely no question that ABA works. Okay. So, but there are certain children who have so many other medical issues going on that biomedical treatments can help them stabilize. Um, I personally, and I'm a very strong advocate for certain biomedical interventions, I have to say, I really don't think there are any other behaviorists um, who are as involved or have been as involved with the biomedical world as I have been. I mean, I was for a number of years on the executive council or committee of DAN, the Defeat Autism mm -hmm. Now group and, and Autism Research Institute. And so I've, they're all my friends and I really respect the work that they do. Um, but I see it as something that is not going to cure autism. I see it as in some children, there are, uh, you need to do some biomedical interventions in order to prepare the child for learning. So I don't really see um, a lot of kids being able, I don't see kids being able to recover, let's say, from just a biomedical intervention, unless they're extremely young and the, the delays are minimal. Mm -hmm. So I'll give some examples. So for instance, if you have, let's say a two-year-old and their language delayed and they have a lot of gastrointestinal issues mm -hmm. going on and you're able to identify those very early on and reverse them through medical interventions, it's very likely the child will learn language through imitation mm -hmm. and will, will overcome their delays in a year or two. Yeah. Or maybe even a year. So there are cases where that could happen. Um, however, in most cases, because, you know, unfortunately with autism, I'm trying to keep this short. I have so much to say about this. <laughs> but in most cases with autism, people, uh, physicians, uh, will hear, will, when they see a child with autism, it, the autism diagnosis kind of overshadows other things. Mm -hmm. So often parents will come to me and say, oh yeah, he's really sick. He doesn't sleep at all. This is just an example. He hardly sleeps. But they tell me, my doctor says that's part of the autism. It's not. It has nothing to do with the autism. The fact that your child doesn't sleep is, is a concern. You need to take care of that. Um, and until you take care of that, I can't expect as a behaviorist that he would learn all that much from me because he's exhausted, his brain isn't functioning, his neurotransmitters are shut down. It's, he's a mess. Yeah. So uh, in my, when I lecture, I often talk about some of the biomedical interventions 
in order to help stabilize the individual, the child, and to help them feel better and yeah. be able to learn better. So many uh, in interventions that will help children who don't sleep sleep better are very good. Um, children who have pain, GI pain, and you can localize the, the, you can figure out what the site is or what the cause is and treat that, very important. Dietary interventions make a huge impact on some of our kids. A lot of our children who don't detoxify adequately, so have oxidative stress, low methylators, mm -hmm. those types of interventions have shown improvements with some of our kids. A lot of our kids who have yeast and fungal issues um, have benefited clearly from antifungal yeah. medications. Um, a lot of kids who have had massive amounts of antibiotics over the years do benefit from probiotics and specialized diets. So, and when I say benefit, they become more aware, they become uh, less self-stimulatory, less agitated, they sleep better, they pay attention better, um, they can imitate from their environment and they can learn better from ABA. So in sum, I am very supportive of some of those interventions and I've gotten into a lot of trouble by saying that, <laughs> but I'll still say it. But I think the common sense, I mean, I have seen you lecture on this and the common sense with which you address it is appreciated by parents. This idea that our kids have to be healthy in order to be in the best possible place to be set up for success to learn. Right. I, you know, there's a phrase that we use here about the duh that's heard around the world and yet some people don't function on that. To me, that's a duh. Right. Of course our kids need to be as healthy as possible. Right, right. Um, and if they're not, that would prevent them from learning at a rate that we would most want to achieve. Yeah, and just letting, I mean, that goes back to the whole concept of letting any any diagnosis overshadow other diagnoses. It's yeah. like, yes, autism is a specific diagnosis and it has certain symptoms, but, you know, not sleeping, having gastrointestinal yeah. pain, um, throwing up, having diarrhea five, ten times a day, none of those are part of autism there's something right. else going on right I, you know where I come from as a parent is if somebody said to me oh your child has strep throat but we're not going to treat it because he has autism That's I would be same. up in our great arms. example great example I would not allow that to happen great and example. I think you know I, there are so many other things that that is also the case absolutely absolutely and you know uh, allergies I yeah. mean uh, a lot of kids have allergies a lot of kids have fungal issues that are so prevalent yeah. and so clear and nobody even deals it. Yeah. Well, and that kind of feeds into, um, we had another question from somebody that wants to know, can you discuss more about yeast and die-offs? And sure. you just mentioned that um, because that it does not affect all of our kids, but it certainly is it something. Affect some. And, yeah. and it is important to know that in my mind, all of these things that we mentioned are higher level, although the general population is catching up pretty quickly, yeah. but it's higher in our kids and I think the reason that it's higher in our kids is because our kids are low methylators they don't detoxify as fast as we do and so there are things in the environment that they react to they're much more let's say sensitive to various environmental factors than than most other people are um, but you know even if you look at the general population I always find it hilarious that there are hundreds of commercials now for probiotics yeah. whereas you know, being involved in the field of autism, and you know this, Shannon, like we've all been pushing probiotics for at least, I don't know, what, 20 years now. Yeah. And it's only in the last maybe two or three years that the general public is, has been exposed yeah. to, oh, make sure you get probiotics. For they don't even say why. They just say better <laughs> digestive functioning, right? Yes. Better better your for better health or better digestive functioning. Well, 
why do we need these things when we didn't need them 15 years ago or 10 years ago, you know, yeah. whatever. And of course, the reason is that our food is not real. We don't have real food anymore. It's all genetically modified food. And so all the genetically modified stuff doesn't provide all the bacteria that we actually need, yeah. which is why we then end up having things like exposure to fungus, yeast infections, inflammation, yeah. all these other problems. Yeah. And, and as far as yeast, I mean, I did not understand the whole yeast connection when my child was diagnosed with autism, but there were very specific things that we called my child the drunken elf. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was a very happy little child, but depending on what he ate, he could be, he looked like a drunk. Absolutely. He would have, he would topple around and he would just giggle right. wildly. Right. And if you smelled his feet, they smelled like they were buns that had just come out of the oven. His head would smell like fresh bread. Amazing. And sometimes his breath would smell like brandy and I can assure you my child was not having exposure to brandy and, but he would just be this drunken little elf yeah, yeah and and so we were told to do some different yeast protocols and one of them was taking yeast out of his diet and 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 when we were told to do that nobody had mentioned to us about die-off mm -hmm. and thank goodness I while because he became much worse mm -hmm. um, he turned into a little bit of a terror right, right. about for about two solid weeks weeks, he was a mess. Right. And I thought, well, I've given it the college try, usually 15 days. If something is worse, I want to stop. And somebody said, oh, don't do that. He's in die off. Right. The yeast, which is a living thing, is being starved. So it's growing right. in order to not die. Absolutely. And the die off is, it's funny that you say you're drunken because yeah. it is very much, it looks like a drunk person. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of, I, I've seen kids who just are walking they can't even walk straight yeah. they're wobbling around yeah a lot of parents will refer to laughing for no reason yeah. that's often part of die-off there's a lot of these types of things to be aware of and the diet is not all that easy initially but and the medication you, typically you're looking at antifungals like yeah. diflucan or nizorol nystatin and so on and they are very effective very fast but the problem that I hear often is just that as soon as you go off the medication you see uh, yeah. sort of the return of certain behaviors yeah and so a lot of uh, the physicians what they do is they use low dose chronic you know they keep it going for a while have you had uh, any of the physicians on on this show we should probably try to get a couple we keep of the talking about that we keep trying to yeah. work it out and yeah. it is we have a we have a a week of biomedical coming up and we're trying to book that right oh, now wonderful. with a bunch of different people that we would like to have on the show to talk about these oh kinds yeah of things. i know a lot of the physicians and i'll definitely try to make that happen with you yeah that'll be very helpful i think i think they tend to be nervous of this format and afraid of what they're going to be asked by right, me, right, you know, right. and and so maybe if you said to them too that I'm not somebody to be frightened of. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm not frightening. Why would no, anyone no, be frightened? I mean, but you know what I mean? Oh, well, you uh, know what? Here's the thing with physicians. I think it's not you necessarily as it is. They're so, they're cautious about their licenses because, absolutely. you know, we talk about um, science. We wanting to make sure that we're doing things that are supported by science. And I'm very, very strongly in support of that. Now, here is a problem, which I hope all of our listeners can follow this. The only way something gets approved by the FDA, for instance, um, is if it has gone through a number of studies. Mm -hmm. And each of the studies have shown 
that this particular thing is effective. Now, the FDA only ex really only looks at one particular type of study, which is called a randomized control trial study. That type of study requires that you have two groups of children, let's say, or two groups of people. One group gets the medication and the other group doesn't. Right. Okay. So if we wanted to do a study for kids with autism and we wanted to test um, a particular antifungal medication. Right. You'd have one group of kids that are put on the medication and another group that are not put on the medication and those kids have to be kind of matched right. in terms of their abilities ahead of time. Right. Okay. So A, it's extremely hard to find a large group of children who are all the same, similar in terms of their abilities, age yeah. and gender and abilities. Right. That's very hard okay, to find because you have to show that they're equivalent by testing. And when, we, when we're talking about group studies, we're talking about large groups. We're not yeah. talking about 10 kids in each group. Right. We're talking about, you know, depending on how many things you measure, the number of kids grows. Right. So, Though that in itself is hard. And secondly, kids with autism are so different from each other yes. that there is no way you can really have two groups that are similar yet they within them they don't they're they're consistent. Right. So let me give an example. If you have in that group, in, in one group, um, if you have children who have bacterial problems and other children who have viral issues, mm -hmm. sensitivities, then the effect of whatever medication is gonna be different yeah. in the group. That means then it's gonna mess up the whole study because it'll make it, the, it'll be a confound. Yeah. And that's what we have found. Now, I'll just go back to the HBOT study, the hyperbaric studies that we did. We did it first in a group format and we had something like, I think, I'm not sure now, 80 kids or something, mm -hmm. 60 kids, 80 kids. And uh, we uh, had to do so many things that were similar for both groups. We matched them, tested them, all that sort of stuff. And then half of them got the actual HBOT um, sessions for a certain number of uh, weeks and the others didn't. And what we, we had... But we should say that they thought they were getting it. They thought they were getting because it. Because they were they still in the tank, correct. but they didn't know what they were getting and that I also want to say in case anybody is worried later on those those children were offered the services. We did give it to them because yes, they, they were weren't cheated. Yeah, yeah. We, we were very fair with that and also you should know that the assessors the people testing didn't know which child got right. it or didn't get it. So right. it was very it was a triple blind really study right. so nobody knew because the kids were coded so it was very clear but essentially even with that format, which is a randomized controlled trial study, uh, we realized that, you know what, there could have been kids within each group that were so divergent from the rest of the group that they throw the numbers off because yeah. it's an average. Yes. So it's not like, let's say, one group you're treating and you're giving an antifungal to. That one group, you might have half the kids reacting positively and half the kids not reacting positively. And what will happen is it'll average out and it'll be a zero effect. Right. Okay? What about those half kids who reacted positively? We're throwing them away. Right. So group studies have that problem in that they, unless it's something that's effective, unless it's a medication or a treatment that's effective for every single group member, yeah. it won't show up. Right. Let's say Tylenol. 
right, or whatever, a headache medication. We everyone responds to something like Tylenol. Everyone responds to something like uh, Advil, whatever it is. You might respond more or less, but everyone would answer that question and say, "Yes, it made me feel better." Right. That's not the case with autism because yeah. the kids are so different. So. In hyperbarics, when we did that study, we went ahead and then did a single subject study okay. where we took individual kids and put them through and then saw whether they differ improved versus their own baseline, their own beginning. And in my mind, FDA needs to open up their review process and accept single subject research for autism. And until they do that, a lot of what these physicians do would will not have you know the seal the gold seal of the FDA on it because these physicians are dealing with individual kids right it makes and it hard for everyone and it makes it very hard for the physicians because they're yeah. scared they're scared they'll get into trouble because they're using stuff in a way that it shouldn't be used they're using antifungal medications for kids with autism right you know right uh, yeah I, I I think it's one of the reasons why too I'm always a proponent for let's phenotype autism as quickly as we possibly can absolutely uh, because if we understood more about the subtypes of autism it would be incredible it would it would I think it would be a big game changer yeah uh, we can look forward to that uh, I'm if should we take a break or yes, forge sure. on ahead Whatever. Okay. let's take a quick break and we'll come right back more with ask dr. Doreen welcome back to ask Dr. Doreen. I've got a bunch of questions that I want to get in, in a short period of time. Uh, all right, I want to go with one that we had on Facebook. My daughter uh, for 20, is 20 years old. She has autism with behavior problems. She takes medication, but nothing helps. Uh, she may be immune to this. Can you help? Um, we had another question that came in on Monday about a mom with a 13-year-old saying, you know, I, I feel like there is this general consensus that at a certain age, parents tend to think, oh, well, the only way we're going to treat autism Autism is with medicine. Yeah, this and they're is not true. happy with the results. Right, I know, and that's probably because uh, a number of different things. I mean, it's been historically much harder to get funding for ABA for older individuals, even right now. Um, I'm fighting uh, Anthem Blue Cross here in California because they're uh, basically doubting the efficacy of ABA and not funding my kids over 10. Right. So, which is ridiculous. Um, that, so that's one reason, and the other reason is that ABA produces change, but it's slower, you know, and I think when our kids become older, we're just so tired, you know, and we yeah. kind of want something that's going to work faster. Right. So with this child, this was, how old was the individual? 20 year, old, 20 year old on Facebook, we had a 13 year old on a live feature. Right. And the 20 year old question said they're... Do Behavior they, problems. She's yeah. been taking medication, but it's not right. helping. Okay. So what can you do to help? Sure. They and them. so... I mean, if you're having behavior problems, that your answer is ABA. That is just very clear. Behavior problems, and I've said this multiple, many, many times on this show before, ha are just out of frustration often with our kids, and especially as they get older, and it's frustration from not being able to communicate. So they are communicating through behavior problems. So if, let's say, the individual hits, they're hitting in order to gain access to something or in order to avoid something. It could be anything, right? Um, if they run away, it's often because they're trying to avoid something, like a situation or something. If they grab and push, it's because they want access to a tangible. Sometimes our older kids will do things just because they want, they want access to attention. Um, so it's always, always to get something or to avoid something. And that is, 
something that can be changed through the manipulation of environmental factors. What happens before the behavior, what happens after the behavior, and that's what ABA is. That's what ABA does. ABA changes um, factors around the behavior, things that happen before it and after it in order to change the behavior. So, you know, you need a behaviorist. Really simple. And it has nothing at all to do with medication. Medication, this is what happens cycle, usually. You have an adult or, you know, teenager, and they have severe behaviors. And you'll go to the physicians and the pediatrician or someone will say, let's put the child on Risperdal. Risperdal is one of the very few FDA approved medications for autism. What it does, it's an antipsychotic medication. And what it does is it basically just mellows you out. That's it. So it's not having any kind of, um, let's say, remediation type effect or curing effect or anything that's even influencing the cause. All it does is it just uh, kind of semi numbs you, it melts you out so that you're not getting, you know, you're not showing anger or so on. And so I don't really like those types of medications. I mean, they're helpful if things have gotten to a point where it's drastic and dangerous, but uh, you always have to figure out why the individual began having that behavior to begin with. Why did they start having tantrums or aggression or whatever? And you have to figure out ways to teach the individual that it's ineffective to do that and then replace it with something a little bit more positive. So, you know, ABA is the answer no matter what age you are uh, for handling behaviors and for teaching new skills, just as a summary. It's interesting because the other question on Facebook was, how do you explain to your parents why ABA? And I feel like you just did that as well. So you answered both questions in one. There's nothing else. That's exactly right, Shannon. There's, I mean, forget about the argument of I need to recover my child or I need to do that, this, that, and the other. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm just saying this is the modality of teaching children, um, and which is the most effective. And it is definitely the modality of changing behavior, so reducing challenging behaviors. Okay. We had another question that came in on the live feature. I unfortunately have lost the use of my computer, but I remember it. Okay. Somebody had asked, uh, what do you do about opposition behavior with changes? Okay. So um, it, this is that's a great question because it kind of summarizes the stuff we've been talking okay. about today. So oppositional behavior, of course, has you have to is is a challenging behavior. So it is definitely something that you need to stop. And through various behavioral techniques, you will stop the oppositional behavior. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have enough time for me to go into exactly how you do that. Okay. But I mean. The reason oppositional behavior continues is two things. Uh, well, is one thing. It's because the person wants to avoid something or gain access to something. So you make sure they are not avoiding the thing mm -hmm. and they're not gaining access to the thing that, okay. that they want. But in this particular case, it was due to change. Yeah. So when it's due to change, then we're talking about uh, anxiety again. Uh, because change, uh, if someone reacts to change, that means they're a little bit scared. Mm -hmm. That's really what it is. Because change causes anxiety. So um, in that particular situation, you would want to do sort of a systematic shaping of teaching the individual how to handle change better 
so gradually like keeping things starting with no change but then exposing the individual to environments that produce it but at the same time making sure the individual is not behave getting their way through right. the oppositional behavior so you would very easy thing for instance teach the individual right off the bat to ask for you know things to stay the same or okay. ask for whatever it is that the opposite of whatever it is that's making them react right uh, ask in a different way like give you a card or ask for it you know right. I don't want to go right now and then they would get maybe 30 seconds or a minute of that instead of getting oppositional oppositional stuff is always just communication okay. so and behaviorists what we do is we do a functional assessment which gives you the reason why the individual is becoming oppositional mm -hmm. what are they trying to do are they trying to gain access to something are they trying to avoid something once you d figure that out you do these interventions to help the individual express themselves in healthier ways and more adaptive functional ways well it's hard to give in a summary yeah and, and but again it's the kind of thing you would want to be working with somebody who understands you can't ju just do a functional behavior assessment like what you're talking about when they assess right. on your own you want to be working with someone right uh, that's a great uh, great thing to take to a board certified behavior analyst or Definitely. take to your ABA provider absolutely but it's very workable oh this is exactly what BCBA do yeah so this is extremely workable yeah okay